The Moon We Drown In Shanmu had lived through three Beijings and been a stranger in them all. During the first Beijing, back in the 80s, he'd still been plain Sam Jennings, fresh from the slate-dark towns of northern Ontario. He'd come to China with nothing more than a few hundred dollars and a visa from one of the film studios that needed more foreign actors. His first role had been an American factory boss who wanted to marry a poor but industrious girl from Xi'an. Don't forget you're supposed to be the bad guy, the director told him. Stop looking so friendly. Okay, Shan said. The second city arrived a few short years later as bicycles were replaced by cars. Former peasants moved in from the countryside, filling the factories and construction sites. Sometimes Shan would imagine the different dialects being spoken by workers on the city's skyline, words that had evolved in farmers' fields and forests, dissolving into the polluted air. I'm a Lao Beijingran, the taxi drivers like to brag, an old Beijinger, born with inside of the Forbidden City. Not many of us left now. This version of Beijing lasted until the Olympic Games, when food vendors were banished and a host of new buildings sprung up. Whole hutong neighborhoods were pulled down to make way for skyscrapers, the old courtyards and alleyways crumbling into dust. Did you know what loanwords I hear most often from English, his wife Hong had asked? Chocolate, cola, and cocaine. Shan watched as his friends divorced their wives and furtively experimented with Viagra, as the educated young adopted the hard R's of the Beijing accent. I'm busy with work, his daughter Chen told him whenever he called. I'll try to call you next month, okay? This third Beijing, Shan thought, was the most mysterious of them all. The changes went deeper than just new buildings and a few less Jianbing stands. Some days he imagined he was on the verge of understanding what had happened, like the name of an old friend on the tip of his tongue. But after a time, he had to admit that he knew the shape of its absence better, the point where comprehension passed him by. Now, when he thought of change, he imagined a strange room without windows or light, a feeling along the sides of the walls for a light switch, or, failing that, just a place in the dark to rest his hands. If only, Shan thought, he could make sense of it all, then surely he would be happy. Surely he would feel that he had finally come home. After three decades in China, Shan still made his living as an actor. He was known within the industry for playing comedic villains, dim American millionaires and dastardly Englishmen. Once, much earlier in his career, he had tried to find more serious parts, like the dashing leads he had admired as a child. But, no matter how hard he tried, the reviews for these movies were always awful. Everyone agreed that when it came to love or grief, Shanmu the Canadian just wasn't convincing. Do I really want to spend my life playing such luckless characters, he'd asked himself. It would be nice if, for once, it was him that got the girl. If his gun went off when it was supposed to. If no one laughed when he fell down. I don't want to be important, he'd said to Hong. Just dignified. Dignity isn't something you'll get from other people. But other people can still take it away. That's just something you'll have to live with, she told him. It was only after the birth of their daughter that Chan's doubt about his job finally vanished. Each night he acted out parts from her book of fairy tales, filled with stories like The Pretty Little Calf and The Wolf of Zhongshan. 
under Chen's watchful eye, Shan transformed into gentle scholars, wicked wives, and a judicious apricot tree. Some nights he became the water mother, flooding the entire village from a single bucket. And throughout it all, Shan thought, he remained the same. Flood or tree, he was Chen's father, and every role was another name for love. Now, nearing retirement, Shan no longer worried about his career. He was a mainstay on the movie circuit and regularly appeared on the English-language news channel. The news corporation called him whenever they needed an older Westerner who knew Beijing well. Tonight, he had been asked to comment on English teachers working without an appropriate visa. China is a hospitable country, but people must show respect, the news anchor Li Jun announced to the camera. Shan nodded. He thought of the central area filled with wealthy foreigners who drank too much and argued with taxi drivers, of the men in San Nitun who slouched outside of fried chicken shops selling tourists weed and cocaine. It was easy to see why so many local people thought of Westerners as arrogant and crass. Still, he sympathized with the young English teachers who came to spend time in China. It's not just the people coming here that need to change, he thought. It's a country, too. Not everywhere is good at letting people from different places belong. I'm Chinese like you, Shan told the news anchor. He and Li Jun both laughed. After the program, Shan decided to head to a nearby German bar. It was on a quiet back street and never seemed to have many customers. Sitting outside in the cool evening air, Shan sipped his beer and munched on pumpkin seeds. The moon was hanging low and heavy in the sky, even larger than during the mid-autumn festival. There were no stars, but the air was unusually clear for August. Pollution, he thought, always seemed to get worse during the summer months. Sometimes, on bad days, it was even possible to taste the air, like a penny placed on the back of his tongue. Whenever this happened, Chen considered leaving Beijing. It wasn't healthy to live this way, he told himself, with heavy metals staining the sunsets, bright oranges and pinks. But then he would look around and realize it was impossible for him to go. The city had been his home for over 30 years, and living anywhere else was just a dream. That didn't stop him worrying for Chen. You should leave, he told her. Move somewhere green. Try living in Canada for a few years, or go see your mother in Australia. But Chen would only shake her head. You worry too much, she told him. And anyway, my job is here. As long as I'm in property development, Beijing is a good place to be. Just one more beer, Shen thought, signaling to the waitress. When was it, he wondered, that his daughter had become so busy? Since her marriage three years ago, he and Chen spoke even less than before. Her husband, Wang Hui, was from Hebei and also worked in real estate. Hui had a heavy brogue and brought him expensive gifts of tea and fruit. There was no reason not to like Hui. He's always talking about money, Shan complained to Chen. You're always talking about money, she pointed out. It was true, he thought, but what else was there to talk about? Above his head, a single cloud brushed against the face of the moon. There was something about these clear summer skies that made him think of Canada. Shan missed the soft blue nights and conical pine trees that grew on the peripheries of his hometown. After winter, the weather felt like a long, slow exhale. 
as though some invisible pressure were lifting from their lives. Even his parents seemed to respond, shaking themselves into a brief flurry of activity. His father would talk about leaving the lumber mill to find a better job. His mother would suggest a trip to Toronto to see her sister and go shopping. But then, somehow, these plans would always be set aside and another year would pass, much as it had before. It was a bad generation to be a man, he told Chen once when she'd asked why he wasn't closer to his father. We couldn't understand each other. I bet it was a worse generation to be a woman. Maybe, he said. You'd have to ask your mother. It's always a worse generation to be a woman. Shen couldn't really say if that was true, but didn't want to argue. And anyway, it was a pointless comparison. The China Hong had grown up in after the famine was nothing like his rural Canadian childhood, with its bad TV and boxed macaroni and cheese. During their life together, Shen could have named a thousand differences between himself and Hong. But not, he thought, the ones that mattered most in the end. The ones that had nothing to do with where they were from. His wife had left him several years before for a martial arts instructor from Sydney. Shan tried and usually succeeded in forgetting the man's name, which was David. Nothing makes you happy, Hong had told him before she left. Sometimes, when I'm with you, I feel like I'm stuck with someone who's got lost in the woods. I want to keep going, but you're just sitting there waiting to die. They tell you to do that, you know, in wilderness training. It's easier for someone to find you if you're staying still. That's not the point, Hong said. Taking a final sip of his beer, Shan stared down the quiet laneway beside the German bar. All of it looked strange, old and new at the same time, familiar but distant. There wasn't much to see, only a neglected apartment block and one small homestyle restaurant. In front of the apartment, a few parched bushes were waving listlessly in the breeze. The feeling of strangeness came from the moon, he realized. It light like a bud of cotton that had grown too ripe and burst. Looking at the grey valleys and craters of the lunar face, Shan felt something catching in his chest. When Chen was little, he used to act out the story of the jade rabbit who lived in the moon how E the archer had earned the elixir of immortality, and how his wife Chang'e drank the elixir to keep it from thieves. After Chang'e drank the potion, she flew to the moon where she found a jade rabbit who prepared the elixir every night, pounding the herbs that kept her alive. Oh E, Shan would say, how lonely I am without you. Then he would walk around the room, rubbing his arms. How big the moon is, how grey and how cold. Shan raised his hand to his eyes and pretended to see the jade rabbit. What is it that I see, he would cry, so beautiful and filled with grace. She'll end up being strange like you if you're not careful, Hong had warned him. But Chen loved the story, and with the fierce insistence of small children, refused to have it changed. It isn't right, she would insist. Tell it the way you always do. The story of the jade rabbit, Shan thought, belonged to both of them, so smooth and perfect that it no longer seemed to have individual parts. It was like a ball he could pick up and hold, one that he and Chen passed back and forth between them. Do you remember how it ends, Lady Chang'e, he would ask? Jade Rabbit, Chen said, 
will you stay with me here in the wilds of this place, where there are no birds and no trees, where all the world is made of silver and ice? Always, he told her, I will be your friend and companion. Every night I will brew you the elixir of life. Where you are brave, I will be brave. Where you are afraid, I will be afraid too. But I will never leave you. I am the jade rabbit who lives in the moon, and I will always stay by your side. When Chen turned 16, Shan decided to buy her a book to remind her of the story they had shared together. The best thing, he thought, would be something by the Tang poet Li Bei. Shan remembered Li Bei from when he was still learning Chinese. You only really know a language when you can understand jokes and poetry, their teacher Louis used to say. You need to be able to laugh and cry. Li Bei, Louis told them, liked to get drunk and write about the moon. According to legend, the poet had drowned after falling into a lake while trying to reach the moon, whose reflection he had mistaken for the real thing. At the time, Shan had got tired of Louis' lectures about poetry. He wanted to be able to watch Chinese TV and talk to women, not read about some crazy poet. Still, there was something about Li Bei that had stayed in his mind. In fact, he was certain it was in one of his poems that he had first read about the Jade Rabbit. At his local bookstore, Shan easily located the collected works of Li Bei. Flipping through the book, he found the poem Old Dust, half-remembered from years before. The living is a passing traveller, the dead a man come home. One brief journey betwixt heaven and earth, then alas, we are the same old dust of ten thousand ages. The rabbit in the moon pants the medicine in vain. Reading the poem, Shan felt like a cold voice had whispered something awful in his ear. No, he thought, the poem was too sad for Chen's birthday, and put Li Bei's book back on the shelf. Now, in the strange light of the moon, Shan felt like talking to Chen. Who knows, he thought, reaching for his phone. Maybe tonight something will have changed. How are you? he asked when she picked up. I thought maybe we could go out for dinner sometime. He heard her take a breath. Are you free? she asked. Why don't you come by my apartment instead? So Shan held a taxi for the short distance to where Chen lived. Outside of her apartment building, there was a large pond built into the concrete. Shan could see his daughter sitting by the water drinking a beer. He sat down next to her. Hey, she said, and handed him a lukewarm can of Qingdao. Her feet were in the artificial pond. After a moment's hesitation, he peeled off his socks and shoes and put his feet in too. There are goldfish, Chen said. They think they're going to be fed. The water was so dark that all he could see were the faint outlines of the fish, their gold and white scales flashing near the surface. They were just normal goldfish, he thought, not the more expensive koi which lived far longer. Every so often, a small silver fin raised like a sail into the air. Shan took a sip of his beer. He was surprised that Chen was drinking. Outside of weddings and New Year, his daughter rarely touched alcohol. I've decided to leave Hui, she told him. We've already agreed I'm going to keep the apartment. I'll pay him off. Don't worry, I have the money. Shan didn't know what to say. 
He always struggled with moments like this, wishing there was a director to bring him a script. I'm sorry about Huey, he said. Don't be. She smiled at him and wiggled her toes in the pond. For a moment, he was reminded of when she was a small child, his own familiar Chen. Do people begin to look more or less like themselves as they age, he wondered. When you called, Chen said, I thought you knew somehow. I thought maybe someone had told you. But then I realized I hadn't mentioned it to anyone, not even mom. She took another sip from her beer. Did you ever notice, she asked him, that some people's lives look like a perfect straight line and other people just drift along? I think I'm one of the drifters, like a piece of wood that's fallen in a river. I keep wanting to stop and grab hold of something. The whole time I was with Hui, I imagined I was waving my arms like a crazy person calling for help, but he didn't notice. He always just wanted to talk about movies or real estate or something different. You are too clever for Hui, Shan told her. Chen shook her head. I liked him because he was so normal, she said. I thought maybe he would help me feel normal too. You are normal. You only think that because you're the same as me. Sometimes I think you only ever came to China so no one would notice. So they'd look at you and go, oh, he's different because he's foreign. But you're one of the drifters too. Shan didn't know what to say to that. His daughter's words should have hurt, but instead they seemed to slide along his skin like drops of water. It was such a beautiful night, he thought, too beautiful to be upset, as the moonlight washed everything familiar away into shadow. Do you remember the story of the jade rabbit in the moon, Shan asked? How could I forget? We used to go through the whole thing every night. Mom told me it nearly drove her insane. Why were you so excited by that story anyway? My Chinese teacher kept telling us about Li Bei, the poet who wrote about the jade rabbit. He drowned after mistaking the reflection of the moon for the real thing. It just stuck with me for some reason. I read Li Bei in university. My professor told us that was just a legend. I like to think he really was reaching for the moon. It's a good way for a poet to die. Chen looked thoughtful. No, she said. I think he just drowned in a normal way and the moon had nothing to do with it. Falling out of a boat was a stupid way to die. His friends loved him and so they had to come up with a better story. My daughter, so unromantic, he teased. I don't understand the point of poems. Say what you mean or don't, you know. The world is confusing enough. Maybe you write poetry because you can't directly say the thing you want. So poems are just another reminder of failure? I think poems are something to grab hold of, even if the water is still moving. You still drown in the end, though, Chen said. Each year, when he was a child, Shan's father would drive him to the local river at night. They went to listen to the small chorus frogs calling for mates in early spring. There are always so many of them that, to Shan, it sounded like the night was creaking. He and his father walked through the darkness, their footsteps crunching in the frozen grass, and stood in silence by the water. This was the only part of his childhood, he thought, that couldn't belong to any other boy from northern Ontario. No one else he knew had a parent who took them out listening to frogs. 
Shan's father, Timothy, was a predictable, serious person who worked hard and was gentle with his wife. During his adolescence, Shan often felt like his father was as thoughtless and transparent as an open window. When Timothy died in his 80s, he couldn't help imagining the sound of it finally slamming shut. During one of these springtime walks, just before he was old enough to stop caring, Shan had gone ahead too quickly on his own. Turning around and around in the darkness, he couldn't get his bearings. For a moment, he had felt completely alone, with only the trees and his own panic for company. Then he'd felt a warm hand on his shoulder. Sam, his father said. What he remembered now was not the relief at being found, but his father's expression staring into the trees. That longing, thought Chen, for whatever lived at the back of the night. Now, Shan asked himself if other people's families were different. If some of them spent their lives contentedly in one place, never worrying about where they might be headed. If that was true, maybe he had passed his loneliness on to Chen. Maybe, without realizing, he had wrapped her in it, just as surely as he had wrapped her in a blanket as a child. I'm sorry, Shan thought. My daughter, I am sorry for what I have done. Chen called him again the following week. Are you free this weekend? She'd asked him. I'd like to show you something. Saturday afternoon, Chen pulled up to his apartment building and threw open her car door. They drove in silence most of the way, listening to the tinny hum of the radio. It was a long drive out of Beijing, past the Third Ring Road and into the country. Because it was a warm evening, people had pulled tables out of the restaurants and were eating on the street. No one so much as glanced at them as they passed by. Finally, Chen pulled up on the side of an unpaved country road, winding around the top of a hill. Here, she said, pointing to an overgrown pathway. It's just a little bit further. He followed her, pushing aside the thin fingers of pine that were blocking the path. The entire slope was covered in creepers and patches of moss. After a minute, they reached a clearing filled with green clusters of vegetation, where there were juniper trees and bushes with flowers like puffs of smoke. Up in the trees, an enormous orb weaver sat in the center of its web, a few drops of moisture catching in the moonlight. It's going to be a theme park, Chen told him. There's going to be a country-style restaurant and a petting zoo, and they're only going to hire people with real country accents. She pointed at the side of the hill. That's what I wanted you to see. He looked and saw burrows of rabbits spread throughout a broad warren. The colony had clearly been there for years, with holes dug into the soft soil of the hillside. One of the locals told me there used to be a fur farm nearby, Chen said. I guess that's where they come from. I wanted you to see them before this place is gone. There were, he realized, tears in her eyes. It's such a shame, she said. It's such a shame it has to go. Shan took her hand. The jade rabbit, he said, pointing up. I loved that story, she told him. I wished that I could live on the moon, too. I didn't mind that it would be cold and lonely. 
I thought that if I had long enough, I'd figure things out. But it's just a fairy tale. Do you remember how it ends? Where you are afraid, I will be afraid too, she whispered. Shan finished the line for her. But I will never leave you. I am the jade rabbit who lives in the moon, and I will always stay by your side. Chen looked at him. Everything changes, and the more it does, the more confused I feel. I just want things to make sense. I want to feel like I've finally come home. Outside of the warren, the rabbits were playing in the long grass. The animals had no way of understanding what would happen to them, Shan thought. They lived outside of time, and when the end came, it would swallow them whole without fear or regret. Just a plunge into the dark water with no need for stories afterwards. Chen was right, he told himself. The journey home was nothing but this strangeness. And now, all he could offer was a place in the night for her hands to rest. The gentle scholar, the wicked wife, the apricot tree all of them reaching for the drowning moon.